Hello, hello. Good morning, everybody. Just uh, give me a wave if you can see me over there. Hello, hello. Eden, I promise you we're going to get a moment where we can get you up. We can hear from you soon. I'm so sorry. I trust that the weather's okay there in PE where you're at. Yeah, I mean, we've got a cracker day in the city of Cape Town today, hey, guys? Another one? Um, yeah, if, you, if, you're new, if you're new to the, uh, our church and visiting our meeting, perhaps, my name is Luke, and I have the real privilege of preaching today. I've been away for, um, I missed uh, last weekend, uh, we were away as a family camping. Yes, we were camping in the snowy mountains. Uh, that's how our family are. We are tough. We are not afraid of the cold and the snow, uh, and we woke up with snow all around us, and uh, we had an amazing time together, um, and uh, yeah, so great to be back, but also kind of charged in my heart, and also well-rested as well. Before I jump into my message today, I see Viv Jenkins, our very special lady, wearing your beautiful hat there. Viv, happy birthday for yesterday. Uh, we just want to honor you for being such an incredible woman in our story, and uh, we're so glad that we get to do life and experience the blessing of um, just your life in our family. And so happy birthday to you for yesterday. Um, one more uh, thing I want to say before we jump into our message that uh, I'm really, really excited about. Today is the last uh, sermon in a while as we're going through the book of Mark. I think it'll be about uh, two or maybe a bit more months before we return to the book of Mark. But next week, Sunday, we begin a five-week journey as a church called Becoming Emotionally Mature. Becoming emotionally mature. And we're looking at what the scriptures teach us about what it is to be emotional beings. And we're, and we're saying this. <coughs> Sorry. I, um, you'll hear today my throat is a little bit hoarse. I had a shout really loud yesterday to explain to Nick Berry what a tip tackle is. Because I think he seemed to have forgotten. And uh, he, he, I really needed to, to raise my volume uh, yesterday in front of the TV screen as we played against the Lions. Um, but uh, anyway, so my throat's a little bit hoarse. The idea being this, that if we think we're becoming more spiritually mature, and we're not becoming more mature in how we process and uh, live out our emotional lives, we're mistaken. That actually our spirituality uh, should, should impart and should infuse and should influence every part of our being. And when we look at Christ and when we look at the scriptures, there is a way of doing an emotional life that is healthy, that if I'm honest with you as a South African or someone who's grown up in South Africa, hey, I, didn't, I didn't really learn a lot of this part of life. And it's critical to faith and it's critical to maturity and so I'm really excited to start speaking next week to becoming emotionally mature I I mean I know we get excited about every preaching series as preachers I'm not going to pretend that we don't but this is probably the one that I'm most excited about this year it's going to be extraordinary as we learn it's going to be relevant to all of us in, in this season of life, but actually in all of life as well. And so uh, don't miss next week as we begin this journey, becoming emotionally mature. This week is our final uh, sermon in, in the book of Mark for the, for the next uh, long while. And uh, let me just give us some context here as we jump into our text. If you want to make your way in your Bibles while I'm busy speaking, turn to Mark chapter 12. Uh, make your way there so long. Uh, last week, Pete preached so powerfully about this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. 
Today I'm going to continue this uh, kind of clash that Jesus is on. The title of my message today is um, The Clash, uh, I don't know if I can see it there, The Clash with the Afterlife. Okay, it's a clash over the afterlife that Jesus has with the Sadducees. Jesus has a clash last week with the Pharisees. Jesus has a clash this week with the Sadducees. And in fact, when we come back, Jesus has another clash with the scribes, these three leadership tiers in, uh, in Judaism. Uh, the Pharisees, today the Sadducees, and next time we speak with the scribes. Jesus is going toe-to-toe, clashing with these guys in a public way, and Mark is writing to us about them. Um, We saw, as I said last week, Pete spoke about Jesus clashing with the Pharisees and Jesus coming out on top. This week, it's the Sadducees, and I'll explain to you who they are in a second, that Jesus clashes with, and next week, the scribes. Each of them is leadership groups that come to try and catch Jesus out, to test him and get him to fail publicly. And each time Jesus comes out on top as they leave with their tails between their legs, so to speak. One of the things that I believe that Mark is trying to do here for us, and I say this on the front end, is there's a changing of the God, if you will. Uh, There's a new leader in town. There's a new authoritative model in town. And Jesus, or a new authority in town. And uh, it's Jesus. And Mark is wanting uh, the people of the day then to shift their allegiances toward Christ. Let's take a look at our text. Mark chapter 12, verse 18 to 27. I'm going to read it through together. Follow along in your Bibles. It should be on your screens now. Here we go. And the Sadducees now came to him. The Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then when he died, he left no offspring. And then the second took her and died, and leaving no offspring. And then the third likewise. And the seven, uh, this happened for all seven brothers, and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be, they asked Jesus. For the seven had her as wife. Verse 24, and Jesus said to them, It's not the reason you are wrong, because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. For as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not dead, but he's not the God of the dead, but the living You are quite wrong, Jesus says. Let's pray. God, before we come come before your word and we ask, Lord, would you speak to us today? Would you speak to us from your word as we tackle this kind of story that was written 2,000 years ago, God? It seems really removed from our culture, yet it speaks so powerfully to our lives today. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would be present in every home and every place where this message is going out and that you would speak to our hearts. We ask today, Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, right on the front end, let me start by asking uh, this question. What is the big idea for today? And I want to let you know that I'm breaking all the rules. Uh, Today, there's not one big idea. Today, we've got two big ideas, right? And so I'm going to go through them right on the front end before we explain them to our lives. The first big idea is this. 
Jesus is our ultimate authority in all of life. Jesus is our ultimate authority for all of life. If you're a Christ follower, Christ is your ultimate authority for all of life. And, and here's the second big idea, um, and they, they, they seem a little bit unrelated, and they kind of are, but they also are really related as well, and we'll see this all come together hopefully towards the end. The second big idea in today's message is resurrection life is real. Resurrection life is real, and it's better than anything that you can imagine. Resurrection life is real and better than anything you can imagine. Okay, let's get into this text here. So who were the Sadducees? I told you I'd uh, explain to us who they are. And the Sadducees, verse 18, we see, and the Sadducees came to him, and they believed that there's no resurrection, and they asked Jesus a question. Now, the Sadducees were, were priestly political leaders, right? So they were, they were members of the priestly order, but yet at the same time, they were kind of like almost the leaders of a political party. So they had, um, they had influence as well as being priests. They were, they were part of the aristocracy. They were men of power, men of wealth, men of influence and men of rank, right? They made up the Sadducees. Uh, as priests, they were closely connected to the temple. Remember the temple that Jesus walked in and halted proceedings just a few messages ago? And so their backs are really up against Jesus, and they wanted Jesus gone. And so they devised this trap, this trap to try and catch Jesus out. This trap is going to try and do two things from their perspective. It's going to, number one, discredit this foolish belief about the resurrection. That's what they're trying to do. They they don't believe in the resurrection. They think that, that it's a load of hogwash, and they're going to disprove that in this question And they're going to do it uh, to Jesus in front of people. And so they can not only discredit the belief about the resurrection, they can discredit Jesus himself. And so what is this trap? Let's read it again and make sure we all understand verse 19 through to 23. And then I'll unpack it and explain it for us. Teacher, Moses, yeah, they, they come with this false humility. Teacher, yes, you, you, you teach me, Jesus, like as if. Moses wrote, us, um, wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. For there were seven brothers. The, the first took a wife and then he died and left no offspring. And so on and so on and so on until at last the woman also died. We read in verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For she was married to all seven of them. Okay, and so they come quite smugly. It's actually a tragic story. It's a very, very sad story. If you think of, um, I'm sure it was probably made up, but maybe this was a real, a real life situation. I don't know. They don't seem to tell it with a lot of compassion. This is more a kind of smugness that they're coming to Jesus with a trap. It's a theological question they pose Jesus. You could look at it as a maths problem as well. Um, how is it that one plus seven will equal two in the afterlife, right? One woman, seven men, all brothers, equal two in the afterlife. Jesus, explain this to us because it just doesn't compute. And they're real smug about the whole thing. What was the background story here? Here's the background story. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, we learn about the custom of the Leverite marriage. And what that is, is if a man dies and leaves behind a childless widow, right? A widow with no sons who would be able to, uh, to, to look after the land, to be able to take ownership of the land is how it worked in those days. Uh, the, what would happen is the, the, the man who died, his brother was, would, would marry the, the wife, the widow, 
And they would uh, conceive of a child. And that child then would become the heir, uh, but in, not, in the, not to the second husband, but as a representative of the first husband, so that his name and his clan and his property and his possessions would be able to continue in his family line, um, and that the wife would not only then stand to lose, would no longer just lose her husband, um, or, or she would... She, if it were not for that, she would stand to not only lose her husband, but everything too. But now, through the intervention of a brother, she then is able to continue to, to live on the land, to, 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 for the family name to continue, and for that kind of family line to go on. This was the custom. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 and 6, if you want to read more. The firstborn son now becomes the representative of the first husband, carrying on the family name, the family estate, and ensuring the family also continues. That she didn't lose everything along with her husband. Now, look, I mean, I'm doing some thinking around this here. If, if we were living under this today, I think in all honesty, all of us men would pay a lot more attention to who our brothers married, right? Um, we, we'd, we'd be a lot more, inve- no, 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 I really don't think she's right for you. Uh, I think, um, you know, we'd all be a lot more invested um, if that was the case these days. Um, But what happens is the Sadducees come to Jesus and they give this tragic story. And they say, right, they explain this process. And the lady had gone through all seven of these husbands. And whether it was either that there was some sort of genetic condition with this family of dudes, in all likelihood, it was the lady herself who was unable to conceive. And and, and in the end, she's left childless. And they ask her, they ask Jesus, who is she married to if she's been married to all seven of these men? And Jesus answers them bluntly, verse 24. And Jesus said to them, is, not the reason, is this not the reason you're all wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. Okay, what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this, resurrection life is real. Resurrection life is real, and it is better than anything that you can imagine. Firstly, resurrection life is real. Jesus says, um, verse 26, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses about the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is quoting the Torah to the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They, They were kind of doctrinal purists. If it wasn't in the first five books in the Bible, then they, then they didn't believe it at all. They staked everything on their belief and understanding on the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus quotes to them from the very place that they base all of their theology. He's, he quotes to them from the book of Moses. Don't you remember the passage about the bush, he says to them? And, and he says this. He says that, that God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob. No, I am. These guys are still alive. They're still in a relationship with me. Th- this text is written in the present tense. The patriarchs are not dead. The promises that, that, that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not die with them. They're still living on. These promises supersede their deaths because... Because death is not the end. Jesus is showing them from the scriptures that resurrection life is real. We we can know resurrection life is real from the scriptures. We can know resurrection life is real from history. Not only, uh, let's start, Jesus himself showed us resurrection life is real by raising people from the dead. 
He did. He, 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 he raised people to life. It was miracles of resurrection life that Christ is uh, written of in the Gospels and spoken of even, even with secular historians uh, like Josephus, recording that, that, that Christ would have done these miracles and, and record these things. Now, Jesus not only raised others to life, but Jesus himself was raised to life by God. Jesus was 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 crucified, was buried, and then was resurrected as a kind of prototype, as the first fruits. First fruits is not a concept we're too familiar with. We get our fruit today from the grocery store. But the first fruit was the first fruit that appeared on the tree. And it was a promise of many more who would come afterwards, like a prototype, the first for which there will be many more. Christ was resurrected as the prototype, as the first fruit by which all of his followers would come and follow after him. Uh, And people saw Jesus raised to life. People saw this. They, they witnessed it. There were, there were many of them. Uh, the, the followers, many more. There were up to 500 at once that Christ appeared to. You, there's no such thing as a group hallucination, right? It's not just that a couple of people had these, these dreams on their own. No, many people all at once saw Jesus, and they staked their lives on this. They staked their lives on this. You know, all they had to do was recant and say, no, 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 maybe, maybe I was just dreaming. Maybe it was just a headache or it was blurry. It was dark. Maybe it was a, you know, that other guy that looks like Jesus. No, no, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm mistaken. They didn't. They paid for this confession with their lives because they had seen something that was so real, so undeniable in Christ being raised that they couldn't recant even under the pressure of death. History tells us the resurrection is real. Resurrection is real, first half of the point. The second half of the point is that resurrection life is real, but it is better than anything you can imagine. And Jesus hints at this for us. Look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven are like the angels in heaven. The only kind of afterlife that the Sadducees could have imagined is an extension of this life. Who will she be married to? Because she was married in this life, so surely it must be the same in the next life. In other words, this life now, that life in the afterlife, is just an extension of the here and now. And so if she was married to them here, she needed to be married to them there. They could only think of resurrection life in terms of a an extension of of a prolonged earthly life. And what Jesus is saying is no. The resurrection life is an entirely new category. And Jesus goes completely off scripture. He says they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In other words, the taxonomies, the categories, the states with which you and I think about life are insufficient to understand the life to come. We need new categories when it comes to understanding resurrection life. And Jesus gives us one. It's a deeply mysterious one. He says it will be like the angels in heaven. And the the point is here that the glories of the life to come cannot even be compared to our present earthly experience. Jesus wants us to reach for higher categories when we think of and understand resurrection life. It's not close to anything we know. So he gives us a category that that we, we understand is amazing, but we really know very little about. He says life will be like angels. 
And I think culture's done a really poor job of explaining life to us like angels. It's not little chubby babies and nappies playing harps and eating aero chocolate or whatever it is. That was my uh, memory of angels, etc. from TV. But, but he gives us a category, angels, that really we don't know so much about. And they then knew even less about, right? Uh, but it, we, we know it's amazing, yet it's deeply mysterious. And it's almost like we're like babies in the womb trying to imagine the wonders of what a sunset over the Atlantic Ocean is like. Or a symphony orchestra playing through the most glorious melodies and harmonies, right? We, we, we know it's amazing, but we don't properly have the, the, the capacity and the ability to, to even begin to understand it. It's a little bit look, like looking into a foggy mist, a glorious mist, a beautiful, but it's foggy and it's, we don't quite understand what it is. 1 Corinthians 15, 40 to 45, to develop this understanding of resurrection life. The point I'm making is, is Jesus gives us a category, angels, that's amazing but yet mysterious too. It's beyond anything you can imagine in this life. 1 Corinthians 15, 40 to 45, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. God's power is so great that there is so much more awaiting us in the life to come. This body is going to be transformed into a body that is fit for the new heavens and the new earth. It's not, it's not resuscitation. That's all the, Pharise- the Sadducees could understand. It's not resuscitation. It's resurrection. It's an altogether different experience. And the life of the Christ follower is going to be so transformed that it will be closer in nature to angelic life than it is to even married life. What does this mean? Uh, Paul says, that, that what is sown in dishonor, we're living in the middle of a pandemic. All of us have lost loved ones. Loved ones to COVID, loved ones to old age, loved ones to illness and accidents. In these final moments of many, many people's lives, they seem dishonorable. They seem inhumane. They're sown in weakness. Many of us have seen people we love go in ways that just, you just, Ah, oh, it, it's dishonoring to that person, their dignity in their life. That's what Paul's saying. It's sown in dishonor. But, but what, what he's also saying is that it's raised in honor. That, 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 that's how we go is no reflection of what's going to be like there. That there on the other side awaiting us is an honorable life in an honorable body. One that is glorious and heavenly. And I'm not speaking of like, a, like an existence like a ghost. We're not these disembodied spirits. But it's, but it's a body that is fit for purpose for the new heavens and the new earth. It is perfect. It is without pain. It is without, without suffering. It is a world without sin. Uh, a, a, fit, a fit for perfect world body is what awaits us on the other side. A fit for a safe and secure world uh, body is what awaits for us. For the Christian, this life, and for, for many of us, this moment in life is as bad as it gets. And every breath you take is one breath closer to this glorious, impending resurrection life reality. That is as true and truer than anything you know in this life right now. Jesus said in John 14, 1 and 2, 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. And that I go there to prepare a place for you. Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher, writer, wrote in his book called, the book titled The Saints' Everlasting Rest. He speaks of three prevailing experiences that await the Christ follower upon resurrection life. He says they are this, they are perfection, they are rest, and they are joy. And perfection first. The, the first thing that's going to happen, the moment uh, upon dying and, and going to be with Christ, when you, when, you, when you emerge on the other side, the first thing you're going to be confronted by on the other side is perfection. Now, perfection is a very difficult thing to understand because even the most perfect and best, uh, mo- most wonderful moments of your life and your earthly existence right now have been imperfect. We, haven't, we, we can't properly even understand what perfection is like, but there you will open your eyes and you will be greeted by the reality of perfection. Suddenly, everything you know, your entire existence, and all that you're aware of will be perfect, like nothing you can imagine now. That perfection is all that you'll see. It is all that you'll know. And then what will happen is rest. A rest will come over you. An experience of rest that originates within you, that centers your entire being, being like a kind of deep soul pacemaker rest that anchors all of who you are from deep within. It will be a rest that will cause a cease from striving, a cease from anxiousness, a cease from drivenness, a cease from worry, an end to fear, an end to want and to lack. And from within you will permeate all of who you are, a rest in God because of the perfection of the world and all that he's done. And then, then will hit you a wave of joy. Joy like, I struggle to explain what this joy will be. We, we don't. But, but the purest, truest sense of joy. Because of lockdown, many of us haven't been able to see family members, friends for so long. Just recently, my wife's sister and husband and two children came to stay with us this last week. And, uh, and obviously, they, they were living and working in Abu Dhabi far away. And, and, and she got to, my wife's sister, my sister-in-law, got to see her mom for the first time in years. And just the joy of seeing someone. I watched, a, someone's been telling me to watch this one series because I remind them of a particular person in that series. And I watched last night and saw a woman reunited with her parents and her daughters after 11 years. 11 years of being apart. The joy of being reunited with people you love. The joy of... The joy of the news that the treatment worked, the the sickness is gone, and it's never coming back. Oh, the rest. This kind of 
pure joy will wash over you and characterize your existence on the other side. And Jesus, in saying, it's like angels, it's mysterious. It's like he's saying, as wonderful as this sounds, you don't even have the capacity and the ability to properly grasp it yet. And so Jesus gives us this mysterious uh, understanding so that in the midst of the mystery, we can know something of its amazingness, but we still don't properly understand. We can't even know how incredible it is. 1 Corinthians 13, 2 says it like this, now we see things things imperfectly like a like puzzling reflections in the mirror but then we will see everything with perfect clarity all that i know now is partial and incomplete but then i will know everything completely just as god who knows me completely and the kicker of it all the most amazing thing at all about resurrection life charles haddon spurgeon the great preacher said this. He said, the streets of gold will have little attraction to us. The music of angels will but slightly enchant us compared to the king in the midst of the throne. He it is who shall rivet our gaze and absorb our thoughts, enchain our affection, and move all of our sacred passions to the highest pitch of celestial ardor. We shall see God. And when we see him, the reason for our entire existence will be clear. Purpose and meaning finally known to who we are at the deepest part of who we are. Our greatest joy will be found in seeing him. Resurrection life is Jesus. Jesus shows us from the scriptures first. Then we see it in history. And he describes it to us in a way that it is better than anything you and I can imagine. Isn't that incredible? But he continues in this text, and I'm going to go very swiftly now. We're most, just so you know, we're most of the way through. One more point. The second big idea is this. Jesus is our ultimate authority for truth in life. Jesus is our ultimate authority for truth in life. Verse 27, Jesus says, He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He says, you are quite wrong. Now, moving past the resurrection, what is Mark trying to do and show us here? Mark is showing us this, this, he's speaking to us about authority. Last week, the Pharisees. This week, the Sadducees. Next week, the scribes. Each time it's a clash with Jesus, these were the authorities of the day. If you were growing up in that time and you were a good Jewish boy or a good Jewish girl and you had an issue, you wanted to know what you should believe and how you should live, you would either go to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes. These were the, 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 the holders of the authority of truth, right? They taught you what you should believe and how you should live. And what happens is each of them have a clash with Jesus and one by one, Jesus comes out on top and Jesus trumps them one by one by one. Jesus comes out on top. And what Mark is doing for us here is Mark is saying, no, no, to, to them then, don't look to the Sadducees, don't look to the Pharisees, don't look to the scribes, look to Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, look to Jesus for what to believe and how to live. Christ is your authority for truth in all of life. Christ follower, how are you doing? Who's your authority for truth? If I can speak for a second, just especially to those of us, part of our younger crew, you know, these days, 
We live in an age where truth has become relative, right? There's no such thing as absolute truth anymore. It's, it's relative. It's subjective. You've got your truth. I've got my truth, you know, and, and you're not supposed to put your truth on me, and I'm not supposed to put my truth on you because we're each supposed to have our own truth, right? And it's tempting in this moment where, where, where we're living to kind of take our truth from what's popular in culture and popular on social media and popular opinion. We look to what's popular in culture for what's right and for what's wrong, for what to believe and how we should live. But here's the thing. The other thing I've noticed about culture and popular culture is that it is ruthless. It's ruthless when you disagree. It's ruthless when you disagree. People can be rejected, can be ostracized, canceled, and in ways that almost discount you as a human being. It's ruthless. And it can be tempting. Here's the thing, guys. It can be tempting to follow Jesus in all the ways that he fits with popular culture and then kind of discount those bits where he differs and leave them just in gray and fudgy mode. You know, oh, Jesus, Jesus says we must love people. Oh, popular culture says we must love people. Oh, that fits, that's good. Oh, but what about this thing Jesus says? And what about this? And what we can do, it can be tempting to kind of leave those in the realm of blurry and just don't go there. Can you see what you're doing? You're putting Jesus on popular culture and popular opinions leash. And Christ's not actually the ultimate authority. It's popular culture. And you, you're, you're taking from Jesus the bits that our modern world says that we can. Not so, Mark is saying. Mark is saying Jesus is the ultimate authority, not popular culture. Even under threat of being rejected, even under threat of harsh social ramifications, Jesus is our ultimate authority for truth in all of life. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to know what you should believe and how you should live, Mark is saying don't look to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes of our day, the sages of social media. And what's, tell us what's acceptable and what's not. Look to Christ. He's the one who shows us what we believe and how we should live. Jesus is our ultimate authority for truth in all of life. Let's put this together. Two big ideas. Number one, Jesus is our ultimate authority for truth in all of life. Take a second before we move on. How are you doing there? Who's your ultimate authority for truth? Is it your peers? Is it social media and popular opinion? Maybe your parents. Who, who, who do you look to? If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you want to follow Jesus, you want to be one of his uh, disciples, apprentices, you want to learn from him, make Christ your ultimate authority for truth. What does that look like for you? And the second point is this. Resurrection life is real and it's better than anything you can imagine. And isn't it beautiful the way these two go together in this text? Because when you understand something of what resurrection life is really going to be like, it's so much easier to look to Christ as your ultimate authority. Because when you, when you see and understand resurrection life, it almost frees you from the need to be so accepted with popular right now opinion and culture. It's an understanding of the reality of the life to come that frees us from needing to bow to the competing authorities in our life right now, isn't it? One last thing. 
when you think of resurrection life like I've described it today, it's clearly impossible to achieve it for ourselves, isn't it? I mean, if, if heaven was to fit me, it would cease to be heaven, wouldn't it? If we were to shrink down heaven to fit me and you, it would cease to be perfect and flawless and so incredible. And so the only alternative in order for heaven to be heaven is for not heaven to be transformed to fit me. It's for me to be transformed to be able to be fit into that kind of ultimate afterlife, right, in Christ. That's what's got to happen. And what you've got to see, when you see that if this is what heaven is like and this is what I'm like, there needs to be a massive transformation in me in order to be fit for there. That is just simply not the kind of thing you can achieve for yourself. That is beyond your and my ability to manufacture or attain or engineer in and for ourselves. In order for you and I to be fit for that kind of afterlife, we need to be transformed by a power that we simply do not possess that is bigger and stronger and more glorious than ourselves it's exactly why Jesus said to the Sadducees you neither know the scriptures nor believe in the power of God because to believe in a resurrection like that is to have an understanding of the power of God the resurrection power of Jesus alive and at work to transform you to make you fit for that kind of existence this is why we need the gospel of Christ this is why you and I need to come to Christ and say, Jesus, in your resurrection power, will you transform who I am to make me fit for that kind of heavenly reality? I don't know where you are in your faith. Perhaps you're investigating the claims of Christ. But if that's the kind of afterlife that Christ is preparing us for, surely you need to see that you don't have what it takes to ready yourself for that kind of world. And that you need a power greater than your own, purer than your own, to resurrect you. Not just resuscitate you, but to resurrect you to be fit for that kind of world. And that's what Christ offers us. I'm going to invite the band to come up and lead us in a song as we close. And as they come, I want to pray for us. Resurrection life is real. And it is better than anything you can imagine. Christ follower, let that truth anchor you in this moment as this world seems topsy-turvy, upside down from week to week. Things we never anticipated happening, suddenly happening. Everything is being shaken. Resurrection life is real. And it is better than anything you can imagine. And it is waiting for you if you're in Christ. Let that truth anchor your soul today. If you're not in Christ, let me pray with you to invite him to transform you, to ready you towards that home he's preparing for you too. Let's pray. Father, I come before you now and I ask you, Jesus, as you have articulated a world that my heart longs for, that I even struggle to properly understand, and imagine, yet fits so well with what I long for within me. Jesus, I want that resurrection life with you on the other side of death. But I realize I'm just, I'm impotent to secure it for myself. I cannot do that, God. It's beyond me. And so, Jesus, would you bring resurrection power, the same power that raised Christ from, from death to life, 
Would you raise me up, Jesus? Would you transform who I am in grace and in power that I would be one day by day being transformed to be more fit for that kind of heavenly existence with you, Jesus? And so right now, I put my trust in you, Christ. I cannot do this on my own, not even close. But Jesus, you graciously transform me. Would you do that now, Lord? For us as a church, Lord Jesus, in this moment, we've lost loved ones. Times we're afraid. It seems the world is losing its mind. And just as we think things have got so bad, how could they get any worse? Then another week comes along and something else rises up, God, that we didn't even anticipate. Yet, Jesus, our home is not this world. Our home is not this present reality. But our home is with you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, as you reach in into every heart, into every home, that you would anchor us in this ultimate reality of a heavenly home, of a resurrection life that is glorious beyond anything we can imagine, but is real and it secures us as people, Lord Jesus. It inspires us as we make decisions. As we put you first again, Jesus as ultimate authority in our lives, Christ. Over to you guys, Mark and Shay.